I want you to think for a moment about some of Scripture's greatest leaders and the reasons why we admire them. First, let's take Moses. Moses was really unsure of himself. Moses made mistakes. He was imperfect. Moses was a murderer. But God used him to lead the people out of captivity and into the promised land. As Moses stood in God's presence at the bush that was burning yet not consumed, he didn't believe that he could do what God was asking him to do. What about Esther? Esther was a young Hebrew woman. And she was basically conscripted into becoming the king's wife. She was enslaved, became property of the king. She was powerless to resist that enslavement. And yet, Esther, this young, powerless woman, held the power to rescue an entire race of people. Or look at David, the youngest and the least likely of seven brothers to rule his father's household, let alone rule a kingdom. He would have been the last to inherit his father's property, and he was the least trained as a warrior. But he was the one who killed the Philistine giant Goliath. And he wasn't wearing kings or warriors armor, and he didn't have a heavy javelin. Instead, he fought Goliath and won with a slingshot and a rock. Or look at Mary, a young, unmarried virgin. She wasn't wealthy or royal, but she carried the Savior, the Messiah, in her womb. Paradox. The weak are strongest. The powerless are somehow powerful. It seems absurd, but it's the truth in Christ Jesus. I really enjoy, I, was, I just came back from vacation. Actually, it was a staycation, and I didn't get to go really anywhere because the kids had stuff going on and There were other obligations, but I did have a great staycation. And on my staycations, I usually spend a lot of time outdoors. And so I was reading um, a a nature um, writer, and uh, his name is Lauren Isley. He's an American anthropologist, educator, philosopher, um, and natural science writer. And I read that He was once spending time at the seaside town of Costabel, and during his lifelong battle with insomnia, he found himself walking the beach every day in the very early hours of the morning. Now, at Costabel, um, lots of starfish would wash up on the shores during the night, and so the townspeople would go out in the morning, and they would collect the starfish, dry them out, and sell them. So they were used for commerce and and tourism and 
um, the people would go out every morning and collect the starfish and dry them out to use them. But one day, Isley um, got up unusually early, and he was walking along the beach, and ahead of him, along the beach, there was a lone person who was walking along and picking up the starfish. But instead of keeping the starfish and putting them in the bucket so that they would die, this person was throwing the starfish. Now, I know you guys have all heard this story, and it may have been told as um, kind of a statement of it matters to this one. But what I found interesting about this is I had never heard this second part of the story. That is, Isley was watching this single person walking along the beach and picking up these starfish and throwing them way out beyond the surf. He gave this person a name. He began to go out every morning earlier and earlier so that he would see this person along the shore because he found in his mind that this was a great example, a great picture in his mind of power being made perfect in weakness. The starfish could not help themselves. But there was one lone person that Isley called the star thrower that would pick up the starfish and return them to the sea. Though this man, the star thrower, had the power to kill the starfish, he was instead saving them. Though he had the power to crush the weak, he instead reached down to rescue them. Isley went on to write a beautiful meditation called The Star Thrower. And in it, toward the end, he wonders, is there a star thrower at work in the universe? A God who contradicts death. A God whose nature is mercy within mercy. You see, the world calls us, pulls us, tugs us, and beckons us to strive, to strive for success, to strive to become richer, to strive to grow stronger. In the workforce and in the classroom, it's about survival of the fittest. It's a constant battle for strength and power. And the wider the world grows, the more competitive it becomes. Children begin to compete at sports when their soccer shorts are so long that they get wet in the dew of the early morning grass. We compete to win at sports. We compete for attention in the classroom. We compete for the best grades. We compete for our place in organizations and clubs. We compete for our jobs, and once we have a job, we compete to keep our jobs. We are constantly striving, comparing ourselves to others. You look tired just having me think about it. But that's not all. Look at your Facebook pages because they show our lives in a perfect photographic color. Our LinkedIn pages 
list our business accolades, never our failures. Instagram and Snapchat, who posts an ugly picture? Our faces are formed into these perfect, constant, plastic smiles. We're connected, thumb deep, to a superficial community 24-7. And we long for places in which we can simply relax, be ourselves, not be on. Our homes have become fortresses of solitude in which we can close the blinds and just be ourselves. But once we're locked inside of ourselves, we find that we're lonely. Loneliness is one of the top causes of depression and anxiety. I'm a passionate advocate for speaking about depression, anxiety, and mental health. Stony Brook will be hosting a youth mental health first aid clinic on August 4th, and I would encourage you, if you are interested in being an advocate for youth mental health, to sign up and join us. You see, even in my own experience, loneliness, depression, and anxiety have had a deep impact. I lost my grandfather to suicide when I was four. At 16, I lost one of my best friends to suicide. At age 18, I found a friend in the midst of an attempt. The college years were difficult for me, and I found myself battling with depression and loneliness. Even though I was in the middle of a college campus, in the middle of a dorm, in the middle of a sorority, in the middle of friends, or on the weekends at home with family. More recently, I've experienced the loss of a colleague in ministry and the near loss of another. Competition, comparison, feelings of not measuring up plague us. But Jesus offers us a different way. Jesus offers us grace. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is enough. With God, we need not strive. With God, we need not compete with others. We are loved simply because we are his children, and we are loved just as we are. As a matter of fact, our weaknesses, our imperfections as humans are ways that God is able to show his strength in us and through us. Our imperfections, which are imperfections by the world's standard, are what complete us. Our imperfections are pinholes for God's power and light to shine out of us. I remember when um, I was a stay-at-home mom, and I've told you before that I wasn't good at the stay-at-home mom thing. It was really rough to go from a career as a high school teacher where I was surrounded by 
people and hustle and bustle all day long to being the lone adult in a household with two kids under five. And I felt lonely a lot of the time, and, and a lot of the time I didn't know if I was doing what I was supposed to be doing as a stay-at-home mom. My mom had been a go-to-work mom, so I didn't know what that stay-at-home mom thing looked like, and I found myself to be very lonely, and I would compare myself to other moms, and I was always striving, always reaching, always looking for the best way. And my pastor at the time encouraged me to start a mops group, and I said, well, I can't lead a mops group because I suck. (laughs) And um, (laughs) she's like, well, uh, there will be other moms there with you. And I came to find out that there were other moms who felt like they were doing horribly at mothering just like me. I found out that maybe I didn't suck. I found out that maybe my weaknesses were the same as other moms, and maybe we could strengthen each other as we gathered together in community. I want you to think a moment about the cross. We have this cross in our sanctuary. You probably wear one around your neck. You might have one at home. And you look at the cross all the time, but I'm going to challenge you to a different way of looking at the cross. See, the cross is a paradox. It's an instrument of torture and death upon which Christ hung and died. And yet, the emptiness of that cross for us is the greatest symbol of hope. That cross is a symbol of both death and life. The cross is a symbol of both grief and joy. The cross is a symbol of both God and humankind. First, let's consider the up and down bar of the cross. The relationship between God and humankind. God is perfect. God is good. God is powerful. Humankind. Sinful. Human nature self-centered, humankind, weak. Those two poles, God and humankind, pull and tug at one another constantly, but God flowing into us and us reaching for God. And think again at the ends of this horizontal bar. On one side of the bar is me, myself, and I. It's what I want, what I need, who I am, how I'm doing, my future, my hope, my dreams. And on the other side of that bar is everyone else, the needs of the world, 
the hopes and dreams of the world. The wants, the desires. And those two poles, me, myself, and I, and everyone else, pull and tug against each other all the time. And yet we flow into one another because I become part of other when I am with other. There is a constant tugging and pulling up and down and side to side. Now close your eyes for a minute because I'm going to have to get you to visualize this. When tugging up and down happens and side to side happens, what happens to the very center of that cross? It pulls, it tugs, and it opens. The side to side pulls the center of the cross open. And what do we see in the center of that cross? God's grace and mercy. At the center of that open cross that only exists when the tugging and the pulling and the tension of the both and occur. That's God's grace for us to experience, to touch, to see, and to know. If we look at the cross as a both and scenario, the tugging from heaven to earth and the tugging from self to other, open up that hole, and God's grace is able to shine out. You see the tension, power, and weakness is necessary. Because in the tension, that's the place where we see God's grace, God's glory, and God's mercy. It's the tugging, the both and that opens the center for us to experience and to know the power of God. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we are tired from the tugging and the pulling, but we know that in that tension you are alive. You are present with us right in the center and in our imperfections, in the cracks in our personhood, in the difficulties and the strain of life. Your power shines through. God, continue to empower us. Continue to open our eyes to opportunities to reach out and share your love with others, that they may experience your grace and your love and your mercy. Give us courage when we feel afraid, when we compare ourselves to others and we feel like we are not enough. Give us courage to remember that in you, in your grace, we are enough because you have said that your grace is sufficient 
that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Amen. I'd invite you to please stand and...